G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A new book tells the story of the first government doctor who went with patrol officers into uncontrolled cannibal areas of Papua New Guinea in the 1960s. It was one of the most primitive parts of PNG in that era. And believe it or not, there are Christian believers perhaps listening in today to our conversation who are ready to lay down their lives as they serve the call of God as missionaries in very inhospitable places. But our special guest today not only lived and worked in the jungles of Papua New Guinea in a day of uncontrolled cannibalism, but he and his wife raised children there. Malcolm Dungey tells his story in a new book called Stethoscopes, Kiaps and the Law of the Jungle. Malcolm Dungey is a medical doctor and ordained minister who has served in mission with his wife Audrey in Papua New Guinea, but not only in PNG, but also Bangladesh, Pakistan and Yemen. He retired at age 80 and has been busy writing ever since, and he's written a number of books. We'll talk about those. In fact, he's the author of of another book called The City of the Great King and 136 Questions About God. Well, Malcolm Dungey is our special guest this hour. Malcolm, a special welcome along to 2020. Thanks, Neil. Pleasure and privilege to be here. Uh, Malcolm, I said you retired about aged 80. Uh, Can you let us in on how old you are now? Oh, okay. I've just had my 87th. 87th birthday. Uh, Malcolm, Let's go to cannibals first, because some people listening will think this sounds like ancient missionary history when there were cannibals uh, who were operating in jungles and uh, open warfare and killing one another and eating one another. Uh, This is in your lifetime, though, back to the 1960s. Yeah, it's only 55 years ago. If you're 87, it's just a pop step and a jump back. And at age 87 now, and going back to the 1960s, you were not even necessarily a young man then uh, when you went in to serve as a doctor in that mission uh, context. No, I was, I was a late entrance into, um, into medicine. It's when the medical school opened in Perth, it enabled me to uh, um, undertake medical training here in, in Perth. So that was I'm a late entrance, seven years older than most. So, yes, I was a little bit... Um, getting long in the tooth when we went out to PNG. I think I was in my late 20s. So for some people, that's long in the tooth. Uh, Now, you were serving in Papua New Guinea as a doctor, and that had a special connection with some sponsorship from the Papua New Guinea government uh, for your being able to train as a doctor. And you were serving in PNG because uh, there was some obligation that you had then to the PNG government. Was that the way it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was uh, fairly penniless as a um, uh, as a, a young man, and my parents weren't able to um, uh, get me the school past um, uh, year nine. 
Uh, and so when the medical school opened, it gave me the opportunity to do medicine here in Perth, but no money. So I had to get a combo scholarship, um, which covered the first three years. The last three years, there was almost no long vacation in a, as a medical student and wasn't able to continue sort of working my way through. So I had to get a cadetship, which so many people had to do for the last um, three years of their uh, medical course. So I signed up with the Department of Territories and, in resp- and they then paid me for the last um, three years of medical school, um, in return for which I had to give them six years on graduation. And uh, that was um, yeah, that was money worth spent, but I, I did have an obligation to the then Department of Territories, which since with the independence became the Papua New Guinea government, and I had to serve that time out. And that was a privilege, really. That was, uh, that was great. Did they tell you at the time, you can serve here where it's safe, or you can go into the jungles uh, where there are still active cannibals, and you chose to go uh, to the hardest, most in, uh, most uh, difficult areas to go. Well, in, in actual fact, the, the sense of adventure was strong. So, uh, the, in fact, the opportunity to go into primitive Papua New Guinea and into those sort of areas was an enormous. Um, uh, challenge and adventure of, of a lifetime, if you like. I think sometimes my wife saw it a little bit differently with um, four, with three young children, uh, but for me it was um, it was a, a great opportunity and a challenge to be uh, there in that in that situation of, of uh, cannibals still being alive and um, in, in eating each other and killing each other. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a great opportunity from that. From that point of view, I imagine some listeners will have this image in their minds of you know wading through the jungles and coming across a primitive tribe, uh, but you in fact had to have special escorts into these particular tribal areas, uh, people who were known as kayaks or uh, those uh, special field officers that you talk about. So it wasn't very easy for someone like you to just turn up there and, hey, I'm here to help. Uh, you actually had to have some special uh, escorts in there to keep you safe along the way. Yeah, that's right. The, in fact, the government, the um, area was uncontrolled and there was no entrance to anyone other than the government. Um, so um, I'd actually asked to go on a government patrol into that area when I heard about it, and I sort of put my hand up and said, hey, me too. There's been no medical work of any kind done there, and they'd take me with you. So um, <clears throat> I was part of um, a, a government patrol, uh, and uh, that meant the... Um, the, the people on my team were armed uh, and frequently had been, in the past, had been attacked. And after I was there, people had, all, had also been attacked. So it was very uncontrolled. Uh, and the aim of government then was to bring that control. And I was part of the government team. I was, I was the doctor who went in there to assess them and see what was happening and make plans for their future. So back then, it wasn't mission. It was, uh, as, a, as a Christian doctor, um, I was there because I thought it was God's will for me to be there, but I was part of the government set up to bring law and order 
to put a halt to uncontrolled murders and cannibalism. So the government couldn't control the murders. And for people eating one another, I'm imagining here that you would eat your enemies if you were one of those uh, Papua New Guinean uh, tribal people. Is that the way it worked or uh, was it such a, a, such a chaotic scene that people were killing one another? How did it, how did it work uh, so far as people's uh, killing one another? Yeah, it was the village next door that they raided. So it really was totally uncontrolled. They'd, they'd carry some young women back, I guess, to continue the... Uh, the gene pool, um, uh, so they were they were interrelated. But yes, it was the village next door, and they were really uncontrolled. It was into that setup that a missionary came just um, a few years after me. I think three years after I was there, a, a missionary was there uh, and waiting for the right opportunity, and he went into that area with his family of five children to bring the gospel. So it was a that was a totally different scene. And missionaries that go into settings like that, uh, they often go in against the good advice that comes from their seniors. Uh, this is this missionary you're talking about uh, didn't get the sort of advice that, uh, that he obeyed. Uh, he decided to go anyway. Yes, I think um, Tom Hoey was a bit of a... Um, a loose cannon from that respect and I don't know if the, his mission um, the Asia Pacific Christian uh, mission had actually told him not to I think that they were on the one it was on the one hand on the other hand situation on the one hand they couldn't have said we support a family of five and five children to go into almost uncontrolled cannibalism but, but on the other hand they wanted the gospel to get to that area so that was that was that balance of risks that um, that missionaries uh, took, and he went in, and it it paid off. And I mean, at this stage, fifty years later, the tribe is totally Christian uh, and totally transformed as a result of the, that man's work. Wow! Fifty years later, a totally transformed tribal group from cannibals to being a Christian tribe. That's true community transformation. Now, that missionary raising his children on the mission fields, and Malcolm, you and your wife Audrey, you raised your own children there in the chaotic and cannibalistic environment there. How do you describe that? <laughs> okay. Well, our children well, our children were aged uh, five, six and seven when we went up to Papua New Guinea, and they spent their childhood there. Uh, and they say, no, that was all a remarkable experience. They always felt safe. Our, our home was in the uh, the headquarters for the the Western Province, so a totally controlled area. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so they they lived in a, a totally safe and controlled area, um, as opposed to those children of that um, that missionary. Uh, but no, our kids describe their days their childhood in Papua New Guinea in very positive terms. And um, they, I think they, in retrospect, they appreciated the opportunity to have been there in these, um, these transformative part of their childhood. 
And you were a doctor in those days in Papua New Guinea and eventually, of course, training for the ministry to become a missionary. And uh, then you went off to serve in Bangladesh, an, an equally difficult uh, situation in Bangladesh. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, Bangladesh, um, we had our six years in Papua New Guinea. Then uh, we came back to Perth, and I did three years in a, a Royal Perth Hospital. And then we felt the call of God to actually be missionaries and, and go back uh, as missionaries, which we did. Uh, and we went out with, uh, then it was called the Bible and Medical Missionary Fellowship. It's a new name. It's uh, InterServe. And we went out with InterServe to Papua New Guinea. It was post-Civil uh, War with Pakistan, post-famine, uh, dreadful situation. There was dead in the streets. Every night a cart went uh, through the town of Dhaka, the capital, picking up the dead. And they'd publicise the number of people in the uh, the next the papers the next day, day, next day as to how many patients were, uh, how many dead people were retrieved off the streets. So it was a... It was a really bad, chaotic, um, awful situation uh, which we found ourselves. And I remember the first time I got off the plane in uh, Dhaka, uh, I, I saw my and saw what was happening around me. My immediate thought was, "Oh God, what have I, <coughs> what, what have I brought my family into?" Um, and it was um, it was a really. Um, a difficult situation for us, but we felt that was where God wanted us, uh, and that um, He wanted us to to serve Him there for the next three years. Helping people look to God daily. Please consider how you will respond during Visionathon coming in the middle week of November. Malcolm Dungy is our guest. He tells his story in a new book called Stethoscopes, Kiaps, and the Law of the Jungle. Malcolm is a medical doctor and ordained minister, served in mission with his wife Audrey in Papua New Guinea, Bangladesh, Pakistan and Yemen. Malcolm, if we're talking about the way that you get inspired to, in fact, take a risk of your own life and you're risking the lives of your family, how do you appreciate getting to know that it is God's will for your life that you actually serve in mission what were some early inspirational experiences for you and your wife to move in that direction? I think that the, the overwhelming thing is that uh, one's motivation, and that is uh, to, to know God's will for your life and then to do it with your whole heart and being and that uh, for, for him, for his glory. And uh, that, I think, has to be the overwhelming motivation without which... Uh, you don't get anywhere. So st- starting with that and the, the surrendering of my will to God and, and just wanting above all to do his will, I think that's the main thing. Um, and then there are, there are other things such as, um, uh, I guess, what, what, what you, who, who you are as a person, you know, uh, what, are, what are my gifts and my training and my personality and who am I now? How can I be useful to God at this point in time? Um, and do I need any further training or experiences for the future? And I think that that kind of question has to also be um, in the background. And then there's also a knowledge of what's the situation out in the world. I mean, um, uh, is mission at home any different from mission 
abroad. Uh, and uh, what's what's the situation out there? And uh, is there a need? And is there a need still for missionaries in overseas service? I think that would be a fundamental thing. That so many young people these days, young Christians, probably don't hear all that much about mission. And it might come as a surprise to some people to find that, yeah, there is still a need. Uh, maybe not with cannibals. Hopefully there's none of those left in the world. Um, that, you know, that, uh, but in terms of the opportunities for service, what are they and how can I, um, how can I be useful to God in some kind of situation at home or abroad and how can I prepare for it? I think those are the, the basic things. And Malcolm, I just and mentioned to you... The, the other fundamental things such as uh, to, um, That's it. Um, uh, to, to know the Bible, um, to um, to look at the Bible for guidance for how you're going to serve God, um, and prayer, uh, praying through situations, um, praying through opportunities, contacting mission societies and saying, hey, what sort of things are available out there? Now, how can I prepare myself? Uh, so I, th- I think those are the very uh, basic things, and equipped with those, one can go to God and say, hey, God, you know, I'm willing to live for you. Um, show me what to, what the next step is and to prayerfully pray one's way through that. So I think those are essential things in, in getting to know the will of God and then carrying it out at the other end when it's revealed to you. And these things happen perhaps at young years in our Christian faith, and you were actually a late starter in mission, uh, not till you're about age 40, officially uh, missionary Malcolm Dungey, but from telephone technician, uh, training as a doctor, ordained pastor, uh, these sorts of things, they don't happen instantly, or they're not short-term things. That sort of preparation actually takes a long time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I think my my desire. I was um, I, I was converted. I was saved out of a basically a non-Christian background at age sixteen. Uh, but from then onwards, because the church I was in was a very missionary-minded church, um, from that time onwards, I wanted to serve God. And so, reading the stories about people like um, Hudson Taylor and other people. They were exciting, and I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be a person like Hudson Taylor um, and other similar people, and I, I, I want to serve God in, in that kind of a way. So I had the desire to serve God uh, in, that, in that way from the very earliest time onwards, let's say from age 16 onwards. I was in a, a training program in the well, what it was then called the PMG, the Postmaster General's Department. These days it's called uh, Telstra. And I was in a training program of five years uh, to be a telecommunications technician. Um, And I served that time out. And then I worked as a technician in a country town for a couple of years, during which time we were married. Um, uh, And uh, then the medical school started and I switched to doing medicine. So so the, yeah, preparation took a long time. When we when we went to Bangladesh for the first time, it was to be the director of a, a new Christian program uh, in Bangladesh, focusing on their 
their physical needs and their needs for transformation. But the, the person I had to be to occupy that position, I had to be a, a medical practitioner. They wanted someone with um, extensive um, training and experience in tropical environments, which I had. I've been in Papua New Guinea for six years, after six years of medical course. Um, and um, it was on that basis we went out to Bangladesh. Now, when we finished in Bangladesh three years later, I felt God was calling me to further study. And so I went to the Baptist Theological College for four years and trained as a pastor. So when that finished, I was then a trained pastor. And in the meantime, I'd undergone some specialist training. There was another few years. So when we went to our, the final, the, the next place was Pakistan, I had behind me... Um, 20 years of training and experience, which I had to have to do the work that I had in Pakistan, which was heading up our work in, in the Middle East. So you, and they, they were key mission steps, um, and, uh, but there had to be preparation for those. Now, let's say um, ordinary wrong, is the wrong word, but the usual preparation for service overseas isn't that extensive. Um, and it's whatever the tra- whatever the uh, the new training that God might want for a person, it's um, it's an individually tailored thing. That's what God directs you into. For me, my work as a trained um, doctor in um, overseas uh, community mental health community um, health programs. Uh, that's, it was appropriate that I had to go through all of those um, steps. But for other people, as whatever God leads you to is the appropriate thing. Malcolm Dungey is a medical doctor and ordained minister who has served in mission with his wife Audrey in Papua New Guinea, Bangladesh, Pakistan and Yemen. He retired at aged 80 and has been busy writing ever since. These days he's 87 years old. Malcolm, as we come back to your serving in Papua New Guinea and just to reference the fact that at this time you were not an ordained minister of the gospel, but serving in mission can even take people who are in their secular profession into places like this where they can be the salt and light of the world. Uh, Any thoughts here around uh, your service in Papua New Guinea and the way that people can use their uh, profession or their gift, which might not necessarily be as an ordained minister, uh, to be used for the glory of the kingdom? Yes, I think uh, there are scores of uh, thousands of um, people who've worked in Papua New Guinea, um, uh, many of them Christians, uh, but people who've um, were in, engaged in the secular employment, um, and um, uh, I guess I'm, I'm speaking particularly to those people these days because there are so many of them um, still around. Um, and um, yes, it was it was it was good for us to be working in a secular capacity in Papua New Guinea, uh, and uh, I join a great tribe of other people who've, who've done the same thing. Yeah, it was a question of living out one's life for God in in the community and showing people what it's like to be an, a practicing Christian. Uh, and there's a there's a role for that. Uh, and most of my work life has, in fact, been spent 
in secular capacities of the government and otherwise. So, yeah, our time in Papua New Guinea was particularly important for us. It was six years of our lives. So, yes, of course it was important. Uh, And um, one can serve God in a number of different ways. And serving God in a a secular capacity uh, back here in Australia um, is vitally important. That's the spot that God wants us to be. So you go into an area like these jungle tribes and at the time an uncontrolled cannibalism taking place and there you are with your family and as you say you actually, your family actually felt quite safe but there was a law and order that was being brought into the chaos of that tribal area and at the time Papua New Guinea was uh, under a UN mandate and administered from Canberra here in Australia until 1975. So uh, there were lots of Aussies who were involved in some of those sorts of places that you were in. Yes, that's right. And uh, and so there's a, a lot, you know, there may well be some of them who um, lived in Papua New Guinea back in those days in a, in a, a secular role and um, who would be listening. So, yeah, what they did was really... Um, uh, really important and all part of of, uh, of the government patrol to to bring Papua New Guinea in, into the modern world, um, sort of escaping the world of the cannibals and the headhunters and so on, in bringing them into the modern the modern world. So that was a, a really important thing to do. And I know there were many um, ex patrol officers or ex ups as they were called, who would uh, say, "Yeah, they were." They were part of that and should feel proud of it. And so, yes, I, I speak to those, such people. Um, what they did was really valuable, and I was part of that. But that was my role as a government doctor. And as we said early in the conversation, those missionaries that came in during that time when you had your tenure in Papua New Guinea and risking their lives to be there to share the gospel, to plant a church and the transformation of a village like that because sometimes people are critical of missionary endeavour saying that somehow or other it uh, tramples over culture. Uh, Was there a culture worth preserving in cannibalism where there was chaos and murders and uh, raiding of villages and uh, the stealing away of women? Was that the sort of culture that sometimes people try to defend? <laughs> I think um, unknowing people might, but uh, um, one of the people I worked with in Papua New Guinea was a, a Australian uh, National University um, uh, linguist, and um, he certainly wouldn't have been of of that mind. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, I mean that, the the sort of society where people can be raided by the next village and, and carted away for, to be eaten. Uh, now, that, that's a, that was a terrible society, really awful. And so um, the, the first missionary into those people who went in with his five children to live amongst them, he, he went in to, um, uh, to uh, help bring them into, into a knowledge of, of Jesus uh, and... Uh, as I might have said earlier on, uh, the, the, that tribe has been transformed. They've become Christian, and the the courage and heroism of uh, that guy and his wife and their five children uh, was enormous. Um, he he trusted those people not to uh, to eat them and their, their children. He took enormous risks, 
but as a result, the tribe has been um, um, converted triumphantly. And Christianity, a civilising influence, and it's not just about winning a soul and planting a church. This is what happens in the transformation of a people. Uh, this is something you've seen time and again, Malcolm. Yes, that's right. Of course, it was repeated in other countries. Now, the countries we've worked in, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan and Yemen, have all been Muslim countries. So very different to Papua New Guinea. Um, And Muslim missionaries who work with Muslim countries, you don't see much in the way of results because uh, for, for many reasons, it's just one of those things um, you know, we are, we are waiting for the day when suddenly there will be uh, an explosion of conversion out of the Muslim world and those overseas countries. But basically, the, the last place, place we were in was Yemen, and Yemen was a, a great place to have been in. We came in after there had been some murders of, the, um, of the, uh, the staff at the Southern Baptist Hospital. Um, and as a result, the government was really clean, uh, keen not to have anything bad happen. So Audrey and I went, went there as replacements for some of these murdered people. Um, and the government actually said, no, well, if you're going to be here, we've got to protect you against anything happening. So when we want to go shopping, they sent a truck with us with a, a big machine gun in the back of it and sort of escorted us while we did our shopping. Now, Audrey hated it, but I, I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was almost funny uh, that the government would went to that extreme to protect us. Uh, so the government was cl- so our our time in Yemen we we felt safe. We we always knew that at, at any time um, an errant um, um, Islamic terrorist might suddenly kill us as they had done for the murdered people in the hospital. So we knew that. Now, that was a risk. And we, we lived with that thought all the time, that that could happen at any time. But nevertheless, paradoxically, we felt safe. We felt we were there because God wanted us to be there. And in our role in, in Yemen, uh, which was the very last book that I published, uh, I was there as a, as a, a doctor in, the, in that um, hospital, Initially, it was a Southern Baptist hospital, and then it became a government hospital. So I worked there as a doctor in the government hospital, uh, and at the same time, I was a pastor to the expatriate church on the compound. Um, and that was that was using my my dual qualifications and experience as a um, ordained pastor, and at the same time uh, as a as a medical doctor. I was able to to use both. Yep. And so our time in Yemen we felt was very valuable. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. Let's take a call. Mike is in Launceston, Tasmania. Hello, Mike. Welcome along. Hi there. Um, back in 78, I went up as a young man to the, the Kuku Kuku or the Kamea people in the top of the Gulf province with the Catholic mission. And um, that was my first intro to missions and then, after I read the book by that Stan Dale and um, he smarted him and that really touched me and I came to the Lord Jesus myself. You came to 
Christ with faith, having read the book by Stan Dale. Is that what you're saying, Mike? Well, well that was that was part of the journey. Part of the journey. I, because I related to, to that, to him being up in the mountains amongst the, the people and he and, and other people um, being martyred and, you know, God has a way of touching people's hearts, especially if they've been up in the in the in the bush amongst the people themselves. Mike, I can hear in your uh, comment here, there's uh, not just the idea of adventure in mission, but also compassion and the real emotion in your voice there. Um, little A thought or two here. Malcolm, your thoughts for Mike? Yeah, no, I think that sounds a really great experience and, um, yeah, re- really um, good to hear. Mike, thank you. a key there was a key app up here at the same time, not too many of them in 78. Thank you. Mike, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Our special guest uh, is a doctor and a pastor. In fact, Malcolm Dungy tells his story in the new book called Stethoscopes, Key Apps and the Law of the Jungle. Let's come back to Yemen because Yemen as an experience and Yemen's got ongoing all sorts of uh, problems today, and I'm, I'm sure you follow the news carefully. But uh, Yemen, a tough place to go for missionaries today, but there are missionaries active in Yemen today. What are your thoughts here, Malcolm? Yeah, if, um, there, are, there are. That's true. Um, now, one has to be, I mean, it is a Muslim country, um, and um, uh, it's, it's different. Um, of um, You have to be there in some capacity which the government recognises as a worthwhile capacity to have that this um, this non-Muslim am- working amongst them. So you have to have something to offer um, and um, and that's usually the basis then for the government to have um, uh, given a person a, a visa uh, to uh, and permission to live there. So things are tightly controlled. I felt that with my capacity as being a both um, a medical doctor and an ordained pastor that I did have something unique to offer um, but other, other people also have unique things to offer so yes um, you, you don't go to, to Yemen with a label missionary because the government's not going to give you a, a visa for that um, but you can go in other capacities and I, I understand that that is still open in my, in my final book on Yemen I do talk about opportunities for uh, Christians in Yemen today and I also talk about the problems you know, for Yemen today. So um, that's also a worthwhile book to get hold of, giving a really up-to-date view on Yemen. So when you are wanting to serve in mission, you sometimes are at an advantage with your opportunity to serve if you don't get called reverend or Pastor, uh, you're oftentimes uh, recognised in your secular role and gift. Uh, the sorts of things you've prepared for, uh, that sometimes is the best way to open the door to be a part of serving God in nations like Yemen. Yeah, that's really important. Whatever it is, um, I mean, when we went back to, um, when because we were in Yemen a couple of times, when we went back in this capacity of, replacing these murdered people, um, we, uh, we were going back um, primarily as doctors then to work in the, in the government hospital 
Um, I didn't need to advertise the fact that we were missionaries because I already knew that, uh, that we'd come there initially to work with the Southern Baptists. And so when it came to working as a as a ordained minister in the compound, um, I, I just set that up and 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 did it, uh, and there, it was all tightly controlled by the government, and they knew that we were there. But I, I sort of didn't blaze and abroad the idea that here I was as an ordained minister serving in a, in essentially in a, in a government hospital. We just simply did it. And they they carefully controlled us. So I think once again, it's a question of going there with something which is recognised by the government uh, as being a valid reason for being there. In my case, it was to be a doctor in this uh, in this new government hospital. Malcolm, going to places that are violent and chaotic, and it can't be just a a case that you know you're attracted to being in those sorts of places, uh, living in an environment knowing that you could be killed at any moment. Uh, you, in fact, were there with your wife Audrey, and uh, in these circumstances with family as well. I wonder if you've got any thoughts here on the fact that you might have felt good and comfortable about living in a chaotic and violent environment, but your wife needing to hear a sense of her own call from God to be there serving alongside you. Yeah, so Audrey was always very keen on having her own call, um, and uh, one of the things with um, with uh, with mission um, is that a couple might have a combined called by God to serve. Um, Audrey felt it was important to have her own, um, which she did. Um, first, of all, first of all, our call to to get into mission, because I'd been involved in, in government, in, um, I was serving as a doctor in at Royal Perth Hospital, and to actually go into mission for the first time was a, a major, absolutely major change of direction for us to go into mission. Uh, and I'd been praying about how I could tell Audrey that what was happening with me, <clears throat> a certain sense of fear and trembling that I eventually told her. <clears throat> and then she said, yeah, me too, that um, God had been dealing with her separately and had felt separately um, call, which she then um, confirmed in, in different ways. So that was the beginning of um, her, her feeling her, her own need to have a, a separate sense of um, of God's call. Malcolm, we often will talk in Christian circles about the idea of counting the cost uh, when you're serving God in whatever capacity, but when it comes to serving in mission, it's no doubt very important. If you're going to serve God and put your hand up and going to violent and very uh, you know chaotic contexts, you've got to be comfortable with the idea that you might not return alive. Uh, you might not be back. Uh, these sorts of things. How do you reconcile the... Diff- or do you understand just how how dangerous things might be before you get there? How do you count the cost when, it, when you're talking mission? I think counting the cost for us operated um, prior to that in as much as uh, when we were first felt the call of God to go out to Bangladesh. It meant main, making some major changes. Um, we had we had three or four children at that stage. Uh, and what were we going to do with our children? And that's 
the, that's the situation of people today. I mean, someone that's listening to this and says, you know, I'd like to be a missionary too, but now I've got four children. What you do about your children is, is a major thing. For us, it really was major. We had to sell our house. Um, uh, we had to, uh, two of our older children went to, into a boarding arrangement with some family and friends in Perth. Uh, our two other children we took with us. We, Christine, we put into a boarding school in India for missionaries' children. And Michael, the very young one, we took with us to Bangladesh. So for us, there was a real um, dislocation of our family, which <clears throat> was really um, traumatic. Uh, it was a traumatic um, accounting cost, which... Um, occurred beforehand and I suppose any other accounting the costs really pale into um, insignificance compared to that. Malcolm, drawing uh, things together here at the end, uh, time is now running out. Uh, your new book is called Stethoscopes, Key Apps and the Law of the Jungle. But You've written a number of books and uh, ever since retiring at age 80, you've been writing uh Prolifically, a number of books. Let me mention the book Yemen, which tells of your uh, time serving God in Yemen as a missionary to the city of the great king and another book called 136 Questions About God's Word and His World. Let me just ask you about that last one I mentioned there, 136 questions. Uh, some people might say, I'm sure there's 150 questions. What ones did Malcolm miss? What is your 136 questions? Did you just get to a point where you said, I've got enough written here, we need to publish this book? Pretty much. Um, what I did was um, I, I tackled in the front of the book, the really important things, such as, for example, homosexual, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, um, abortion, um, those sorts of issues I uh, discuss up front. Um, and the, the big thing in my book is to always refer to what to use the scripture. So it's not an examination from, uh, from a social work point of view or from any other consideration other than what is the scriptural position you know, on homosexuality, homosexual marriage, abortion, you know, what, what does the Bible actually say? Uh, and, so, and then I go into other things such as what's the future of Israel? You know, what does the Bible say about Israel? And what about the, the problems with the Palestinians? Um, and so on and so forth. So I, I tackle all of those really big things and and then of course there's the fundamental issues now how do I go about indicating in the Bible that that Jesus is God Um, the fundamental thing with mission to Muslims is that Jesus is God and the Bible is God's inspired word and these are the the key things that we have to put across to Islam Um, the, the old advice used to be don't raise controversial issues but these days, Muslims raise those issues. Muslims say, oh, how can you say that Jesus is God, uh, etc." So they raise those issues. So my book deals with them with, from the Bible as to what is the answer to those, those crucial things. You know, is Jesus both God and man? Did he die on the cross? What did he do? So my book covers all those things. 
Well, you're well qualified to speak into all of those contexts, Malcolm Dungey. And let me just mention those books. The new one, Stethoscopes, Key Apps and the Law of the Jungle. We've also mentioned your book, Yemen, To the City of the Great King, and 136 questions about God's Word and His world. Here's how listeners can get a connection uh, and get a hold of those books that we're talking about. Malcolm Dungey, D-U-N-J-E-Y dot com. That's Malcolm Dungey dot com. And simply Googling those, you'll be able to get a hold of them too as they're for sale and online booksellers. Uh, Malcolm, wonderful getting your insights. Thank you so much for taking some time to share those with listeners today on 2020. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, Neil. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.